Okay, so we're gonna dive straight in, Elka. You've said before that you are the least powerful CEO. Straight away, we know that you're not American. Um, but uh, tell me about the statement. I, unpack it for me. To be honest, sometimes I wish I never had said it. Because um, oh, oh, <laughs> first of all, oftentimes um, it gets misunderstood. But, but first of all, it makes it sound that I have nothing to do or, you know, I actually don't do that much. But what I originally meant with that statement was that, uh, like, we, we, uh, we convert heart of the supercell culture is this idea of these independent teams that we call cells. And that's where the name of the company comes from. And, and the whole thinking is that, you know, these cells are their own independent, you know, kind of companies within the greater company and we give them like a complete kind of independence, but then also responsibility to build the games that they want to build. And, 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 you know, and, and, and they are completely independent. And, and the kind of thinking is that, uh, then we can let these cells make all the decisions. First of all, because they don't need to get approval, uh, from anybody from the higher ups. You know, these decisions get made very, very fast, which makes them execute faster. But second of all, because these decisions are made by the people who actually create the games. So these people obviously are the closest to the product and to the players and therefore, that should increase the quality of these decisions. So, so the, our kind of thinking is that, uh, you know, the more these cells make these decisions by themselves, the better. And in an ideal world, you know, they would make all the decisions, which means that I would make no decisions, which would then make me, I guess, in, in a way, um, a least powerful CEO. So that's where that sort of a thinking comes from. I think something I, I find hard personally, and I think many founders find hard is actually kind of the emotional side of like looking after your team, but also guiding your team as a leader. My question to you is like, Doug Leone said before, Sequoia is a team. We are not a family. Are we teams or are we families? And how do you think about that balance? I think we are, uh, first and foremost, we are teams. Because if you think about a, and I'm a big sports fan, I oftentimes I annoy the people at Supercell by comparing our teams to, to, you know, sports teams. And obviously, like, the, the goal of a sports team is to, a professional sports team is to win. That's the kind of ultimate goal. And the way you kind of want to get to that goal is that, one, you need to get the best possible players, you know, you, you place them in, in the kind of positions where they can have the biggest impact and you need to have this great team culture and all of those things. And, and, and you know, and, and sometimes you have to make tough calls, you know. Sometimes you need to fire people from your team just to make the team better. And obviously those type of things you don't do when you're your family. Cass, what do you think are the biggest mistakes that founders make in terms of team assembly and culture? When you look across the investments you have, the founders you mentor, what are the mistakes? Culture can be this kind of a warm, kind of fussy, fluffy thing that is sort of a, you know, gets thrown around a lot. And, and about, you know, I think it's actually a very serious topic and founders should spend a lot of time talking about, you know, not, not just about like what type of products they want to build, but also what type of company they want to build. And then, you know, at the heart of that company building effort is the culture, ultimately, at least in, in, in my opinion. And so you, one, you need to spend a lot of time on it. Uh, and then the mistake that at least I did, and I, I see many people making is that, you know, they can talk about the culture, but then they don't like define it for us it took a long time to actually write it down because it felt like this kind of big corporate thing to do and, and all that but uh but you know if you don't write it down it's especially as you scale it becomes it's harder to kind of communicate it and also like 
written text has this advantage that it can force this discussion. And if somebody doesn't agree, like, you know, what, have you, what you have written down, you know, that's going to be a very healthy discussion about the, the culture. And then maybe the last, last thing is that, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, there's a team member who actually doesn't fit the culture. You know, most people or many people and founders, they may be like shy away from having that difficult difficult conversation with, with that somebody because ultimately like if somebody isn't a fit uh, to the culture you know you somehow you that person has to exit the company and those can be like very difficult di- discussions and, and decisions so for me like culture is, is a real thing and you should take it very seriously so i spoke to some of your investors before and they said that i had to ask about the beer versus champagne culture at supercell what, what is the beer versus champagne culture that we have beer versus champagne well, that I don't know about that, and, and you know, uh, I'm sure if it make, makes us sound like almost like alcoholics, but uh, <laughs> but you know, the, the champagne culture, like where you know that comes from, is that uh, like back in the day when they kind of killed our first uh, game, and obviously it, it was a kind of a sad moment, and 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 then the kind of team like you know wanted to like talk to the rest of the company about like the lessons that they had learned through through that experience, and I thought that. Uh, you know, I have to cheer up the, the meeting a little bit. And, I, you know, I, and back then, they were a much smaller company, just a few tens of people. And I thought that I would, you know, go and, you know, buy a few bottles of champagne. And, you know, so somehow, like, in a way, celebrate this failure. And not maybe the failure, but, but you know, the learnings that came from that, that failure. And then that thing started to live on, and it sort of became this kind of internal thing of ours. But the whole point is that, you know, uh, you know, when you are in the games business, like, you know, it's, it, I guess it's quite similar to the venture capital businesses, but, you know, the, the, you're successful only by, like, generating these, like, um, and creating these outlier successes. Sure. Uh, and, and, you know, you try many things, but then very, very few things actually work out. But then you want to take as much, much risk as possible, because that's the only way those outlier uh, successes can even happen. And therefore, like, when you, do a lot, take a lot of risk in an effort to create those outlier successes, it means that there's going to be lots and lots of failed games. And, and you know, therefore, it's, it's in our best interest as a company to encourage people to take risks. But that means a lot of failure. So, so that, therefore, it makes sense to make the failure be as safe as possible. Because if people start to be afraid of failing, you know, they will come start to play it safe. And then I don't think those outlier successes would happen. So how do you sustain that morale when we have multiple failures in a row? I mean, you had three at the start. Or if you're a venture firm, if, you know, it's uh, liquidity is you know, few and far between now. Um, if you have a long period without massive hits, without IPOs, how do you sustain morale in the periods between the hits? Well, first of all, like, uh, you need to have the right type of people. You want to have the people who actually thrive on that, that kind of a challenge. And this joke, when you talk to a like, room of entrepreneurs and they say there's like, a, you know, 20 entrepreneurs and you tell them that, that you guys realize that only one of you, 20, will be successful. And then everybody is like, sorry for all the other entrepreneurs because they think they will be the one. And it's a little bit the same thing in the games and game teams. So you, you almost like you have to live in this kind of a bubble of your own that, okay, of course, my game is going to be the next uh, multi-billion dollar hit game. And I'm kind of sorry for everybody else. I'm sorry that you guys probably won't make it, but we will. But you need to have those type of people, these kind of crazy entrepreneurial game developers and creative people in your team. That's the 
most important thing. And then the other thing is what I just said, you know, you never ever punish people for failures or making mistakes, because in fact, you almost want to encourage them to do that. Because, uh, you know, because that's where because the biggest successes will come, like uh, ultimately from them. People take huge amount of risks. Uh, and, and, you know, one of those days when we kind of get lucky, uh, it'll become a, a big success. Okay. I think that actually kind of companies are defined by a few moments, the best, the worst, and those decisions are made large part by you. When you reflect on the Supercell journey, what do you think is the best decision that you've made? And how did you learn from that? I'm not sure like what is, if there's been like a single sort of best decision, but some of the great decisions that they've made had one thing in common. And that one thing is that they've been very hard decisions. So either, you know, they've involved or have had something to do with like, you know, increasing the focus, like, you know, starting to like kill initiatives or kill other projects, getting more focused or even doing a pivot. Um, to something else or, you know, changing fundamentally how we kind of think about things. And, you know, change can be very hard, especially when you've been sort of successful before. So those type of things, you know, unfortunately, of course, like letting go of people and, and those type of things. But I think oftentimes the hardest decisions have also been the best ones. How do you, how do you approach them? Do you talk to your wife? Do you talk to your team? Like what's your process for making those really hard decisions when you know that those are the big decisions? Well, I, I try to actually talk to quite a few people and, and I, I try to be actually very open about it and very honest with our people. Do you talk to your team about them? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Uh, and, and, you know, before making any kind of uh, decisions, uh, you know, I, I, I talk to like a, a, either a, a smaller group of people, but oftentimes, you know, a very large group of people. And we still try to do that. So these days we are... 500 people so of course you can't you possibly can't talk to everybody but but you want to talk to like the some some key people for sure if there's commonalities in terms of the best decisions are hard if i were to say hey can you choose your worst decision that you made it could be a game that you released it could be a market entry that you did what was the worst decision that you made and how did that impact your mindset the kind of worst decisions that we've made are actually decisions we haven't made. And, and oftentimes they have something to do with the kind of past successes. So I think in many ways, like uh, we've also like, you know, had these moments where I think we've been very close to like uh, being uh, victims of our past successes. What I hadn't realized, you know, before was that, you know, since we have been obviously super, super lucky and you've had these amazing successes, like Clash of Clans has done way more than $10 billion like during its lifetime. And we've been lucky to release like five of these, you know, multi-billion dollar games, etc. So what happens like when you get this success is that um, you start to like very easily look in the rear view mirror. You start to look, think and like, okay, we should actually repeat the things that have made us successful rather than looking forward and, and, and having this curious and open mind and, and you know, and what I've learned from that is that, you know, actually, I don't think, at least in our business, the hardest thing is not to, like, uh, create success. The, the hardest thing is actually to repeat success. For example, I just spoke about our kind of the cell culture and cell model. And for years and years, we were so proud that how small our teams are. And we felt that that was, like, at the very core of Supercell culture. But then if I'm honest, that culture like hasn't served us well, especially in these live games, because the reality is that if you want to produce 
more content and do better games for your players. Like in, in this time and age, you know, it requires a way bigger team. And it took us years to kind of realize that. And it's a great example of like, you know, something that, you know, kind of made you, you great isn't necessarily that same something won't, you know, uh, make you great in, in the future. Can I ask you, you mentioned going kind of that to teams and kind of trust as well. You mentioned the cells earlier. How do you think about trusting teams to make decisions independently? If you sit at the top of CEO making the good, the bad decisions, what does that reporting structure look like in terms of the cells and how they make decisions and how they flow back to you? Well, for me, like, um, I mean, trust is, is sort of a kind of glue that keeps all the company together. We have very little process and, and you know, relatively like, uh, you know, uh, kind of flat hierarchy. Um, so, I mean, trust is essential for us. And that, as, as I said, it is kind of the lifeblood of, of Supercell. And for me, trust is binary. Like, either I trust a team or a person 100% or when I don't trust that team and, and person. As long as I trust the team and especially the lead of that team, you know, then uh, those people like should make the calls. But then on the other hand, like if at some point I lose the trust, you know, then, you know, our approach is never that, okay, we will go and tell that team what to do. Then that team just shouldn't exist at Supercell. Is it possible to regain trust? I think it is. We've had a number of cases where, for example, we have a team and, and it isn't performing that well, but then they do, as, as sports teams do, we do some changes to the team composition, like maybe like the lead of a team changes or, or some other changes. And yes, I mean, you know, when they you give them a kind of fresh start. I think we should talk about Europe as well, given what we're obviously in London and given the context. So when we think about Europe, we've both been to so many events where it's like, now's the time for Europe. I mean, I've been in this for nine years. You've been in it for you know, a little bit longer. Is now the time for Europe? If so, why now? And are we just kind of saying the same thing again? I absolutely believe that now is the time for Europe. And, and the way I think about it is that if I compare now to the time when we founded Supercell, it was more than 13 years ago, when we founded Supercell, and you know, very practically speaking, like how many VCs there in Europe who I could like realistically go and, and speak to about raising a large sort of seed round or large series A round for a gaming company from Europe. I mean, not that many. Um, how many people there were who got other like fellow founders, entrepreneurs who got call for an advice, you know, like a little bit later on that, how do you actually like build this like multi-billion dollar company and, and you how do you gonna get to scale? Like how many entrepreneurs from Europe there were like in in those times. And again, not many, like, well, one of them was just here on the stage, Niklas, who, who I did call and, and was lucky enough also to have as our investor, but there was a very like limited number of people. And then if I compare that to like where we are now, I mean, there's like so many uh, great VCs, you can like get funding from, you know, there's so many great founders and, you know, who built like companies at scale from Europe who are very happy to kind of give you advice. And, and many of them invest to these companies including myself. So I think it's very different. How do you think about founder-led funding? And what I mean by that is you and, you know, there's a cohort of European powerhouses who are investing heavily. How do we think about the next five years in terms of European powerhouse founders and their role in the funding ecosystem? I think it's extremely important. First of all, like, 
maybe it's obvious to everybody, but at, at least I, I feel very, very passionate about creating or trying to help create the next wave of like extremely valuable tech companies that come from Europe. I I'm, I'm feel very passionate about European entrepreneurship as a whole, and I think it's incredibly important for our part of the world. And I think we, we kind of the European founders with experience and with capital, uh, I think they play a crucial role in that. And I almost would say it's, it's our responsibility to invest in sort of the next wave of founders. And actually, the good news is that I think it's happening all over. And like on my part, I've been, you know, working with guys like obviously Mickey, who isn't here, but the, you know, Robert Gens, who's a founder of Zalando, and actually Eleanor, who was just here. Uh, on the stage and many others and they we can invest it together to companies and not only do we provide the capital but we also like provide the kind of a, uh, sort of our expertise obviously and I think we can help them solve very practical problems as, as kind of fellow entrepreneurs and I think we kind of all the European founders sort of like us in a way like unite and help each other out that's the way we'll, we'll build those hundred billion dollar and more valuable companies which actually come from Europe I had a guest on the show the other day, and they said, America innovates, China replicates, and Europe regulates. And I was in the gym this morning, and I saw this Brussels conference, and it said, uh, Brussels regulating the world. And I just want to hear, how do you think about actually regulation being a preventative barrier for Europe, which it seems much of the world think it is? Is that a fair summarization? Well, I, I certainly do worry about it, and but I would also like put put also some responsibility in the in us as sort of entrepreneurs and European founders is that we probably should do even more to like use our influence to like make you know make the environment and better and make Europe the world's best place for tech companies and 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 startups. But I I think it's a real risk, and I think it, you know some of that has been like talked about even today here on on the stage. What would you like to see change? If we can do something to be better, like proactive, what can we do to be better as an ecosystem, Europe moving forward in the next one to two years? Well, lots of people say that one of the disadvantages of, of Europe is that they are such a kind of fragmented yeah. ecosystem. But I would almost say that, hey, uh, in the spirit of what uh, Polly and Robert said in their opening words, I mean, let's turn that disadvantage to an advantage. I mean, nothing prevents us as, as kind of European founders and and investors to work way closer together. And, you know, and I think lots of great things are happening, like including this event, like where we're going to bring this community together and let's just get better, like uh, somehow, like, you know, working together as a community. I've been lucky enough to be part of like many great communities, but probably one of the best communities I'm part of is actually the, the Finnish startup and, and the sort of the games community. And, and I think what m makes that community fantastic is that nobody thinks about the other companies as like their competitors. And here we come to your um, analogy about family. We actually do think about us as a kind of family. It's a very big family these days, but we fundamentally share this belief that this, if one company is successful, it will benefit everybody in the community. And hopefully we could get even more that type of thinking to the European tech ecosystem. And you, you said there about family. I want to move into a quick fire round, but you've got three children. You can call yourself up the night before your first child and you can say, Ilka, you should know dot, dot, dot. What would you tell yourself? Good question. Well, obviously, like uh, we've heard here today, like how important it is to be a very 
decisive and obsessive and about your company, etc. But, you know, my advice would be spend as much time with your kids also as, as possible. I think that's still ultimately the most important thing. You can have dinner with anyone, dead or alive, and you get to spend the evening asking them questions. Who would you spend the evening with asking questions? I would uh, spend time actually with my grandfather, who actually unfortunately passed away right before I was born. So I never met the guy. I heard great things and I'd love to spend time and ask questions. You can be CEO of any other company for a day. Which company would you be CEO of? Nintendo. Why? I love their games. Uh, you know, I uh, grew up playing their games. I still play their games together with my kids. Whenever somebody says Nintendo or mentions one of their games, people smile. And, you know, my biggest dream with Supercell is that one day we'd love to be able to do the same thing. And, and the other thing is that they, Nintendo is more than 100 years old and entertainment companies. From my point of view, I know it's an extremely bold dream and it's very, very early for us. But, you know, that's the kind of inspiration for us. Does money make you happy? No. Why? I don't know, like, why, why would it? I, I think there are way more important things in life, you know, family, kids, friends, you know, all these great things that you can do that actually don't require that much money. Do you appreciate the freedom that money gives you? I do, I do. Yeah, okay. Um, what would you change about the world of venture capital? I love the world of venture capital to think even more long term. Do you think we don't today, as a VC, giving feedback, do you think we think too short term today? Well, I, I think some do, and I know it comes from we got a w w the way that these funds are structured. But sometimes you'd think that you know we could be able to think in in decades, not just in in years. What's the next five to ten years for you and Supercell? In five to ten years, if we have this conversation again, where's Ilker and Supercell then? Well, hopefully we would be a few steps closer to that big dream that I just spoke about. Well, we are trying to build this company which uh, you know would have a hundreds, if, if not a billion players, these global games that are played all around the world, just make people happy. And, um, and again, like, you know, in our business, the, the kind of hardest thing is not to like create success, but the hardest thing is to repeat success and build this like enduring company that would last for decades and, and hopefully in the best case for more than a hundred years. So hopefully in five years, when we have this conversation to feel that we are a few steps closer to that bold dream. Ilka, thank you so much for doing this. I've so enjoyed it and it's been great to have you in London. Thank you so much, Harry.